When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Ollie Mann, and welcome to Why, the podcast that journeys to the furthest reaches of the universe. Are we all living in a hallucination? Your knee-jerk answer to that is almost certainly, straightforwardly, no. But can your brain's instinctive answers be trusted anyway? I'll give you an example. I recently came across a meme which was ostensibly a photo of Lime Street Station in Liverpool. The caption said, squint and look again. So I squinted for ages, but try as I might, I could still only see the train station. Then I looked at the replies and learned that loads of other people could see John Lennon's face. With this knowledge, I looked back at the same photo and suddenly I could see the photo of John Lennon as well. The train station turnstiles had blurred and rearranged themselves into a famous image of the singer, the glasses, the hair. Now, the image hadn't changed. It was a clever AI composite. But my brain, knowing to look for John Lennon, suddenly saw it differently to when I'd accepted that it was Lime Street Station. Now, how can it be that this sensory data, neutral, unchanging, can be perceived by my brain in two entirely different ways? Remember the viral sensation of 2015, the dress? Half the world, looking at that image, swore that the dress was blue and black. The other half would bet their grandmother on the fact it was gold and white. It pulled apart ideas of individual perception and beyond colour. Now, for neuroscientists, optical illusions like this lift the lid on how our brains deal with the incredible amount of data we receive. So much data, there's sometimes not enough time to process it all before a response is required, like the decision that it's safe to cross the street. Everything we see is processed through a filter of our prior expectations. Is what we call reality, in fact, just our perceptions? The brain filling in the gaps around the data it's receiving to create a story we can accept and thrive within. So, today on Why, we're asking, are we all living in a hallucination? There really is a real world out there whether it's a car or, an, or another person, or indeed a dress. But the way we experience it, that's always going to be a construction. And we never ever experience things as they really are. We always experience them as, as the novelist Anais Nin said. We experience the world as we are, not as it is. Anil Seth is Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex and author of Being You, A New Science of Consciousness. The self is itself a kind of perception. You know, we experience being a self, I think, through the same kinds of mechanisms that the brain 
enables an experience of the world. So, what happens when our brain takes in data about the world around us? I love the example that that you gave of how when our brains or, or when our minds expect certain things to happen, well, that really shapes what we end up experiencing. Yeah. And there's a classic view about what happens when our brains perceive the world, which is this kind of outside-in view, as if the world is out there in all its richness and it just pours itself into our minds through the transparent windows of our eyes and our ears. Like I'm sitting now, I can, I can see through the window, I can see the houses across the street and some cars. And it just seems that you know they're there with all their shapes and colors. My mind is just registering what's already out there, reading out the world through this, as you said, this like massive stream of data that's pouring itself in this case, Mm. into my eyes. That's the kind of intuitive way, because it seems as though that's what's going on. And in fact, a lot of neuroscience is based on this idea of the brain reading out the world. But what's actually happening, at least I think, and this builds on a lot of work over the last century or so, is totally the other way around. It's not only that our expectations filter what's coming on and fill in the gaps, it almost totally inverts. It's what we experience is coming from the inside out, that the brain is continually making predictions about what's out there in the world. And the sensory data, we never directly experience it at all. The sensory data is there to keep the brain's predictions geared to the world in ways that are useful. So we actively generate our experienced worlds and our experienced selves. We don't just passively register what happens to be there and filter it in this way or that. I mean, I think the hard thing for people to get their heads around when you're talking about this kind of thing is to imagine the world as sensory data at all. You know, people listening to this will say, well, it's all very well as a kind of philosophical interpretation, but I know that chair is over there. It's not about my perception. It it might be my experience that's taught me the chair's there, but it's not a guess. That is a chair. Everyone would agree it's a chair. Pretty much everyone would agree. I mean, you always find some people that might say, well, you know, what is a chair? But I don't, I'm not saying that everything is up for grabs and that the real world (laughs) is always made up by whatever our brain decides. No, there's a real world out there. So there are chair-like things and across the road there you know there are car-like things and house-like things but the way we experience them is is always a construction you mentioned the dress in the introduction and this is a really good example of how the brain can create conscious experience it's not just reading out what's there different people have brains that interpret the same input in totally different ways and that underlies Mm. very different kinds of experience there really is a real world out there whether it's a car or, an, or another person or, or indeed a dress. But the way we experience it, that, that's always going to be a construction. And we never, ever experience things as they really are. We always experience them as, as the novelist Anais Nin said. We, we experience the world as we are, not as it is. And that's fine. Evolution has made very sure that the way we experience the world is very, very tightly geared to features of objective reality that are useful for us. You know, if if we're crossing the road, you're absolutely right. I mean, we need to perceive the world in a way that means we don't get run over by a bus. And so we do. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting in terms of the data that you're taking in because the data's adapting, isn't it? So what the ears might hear that's close by that the eyes can't see changes what your brain perceives about where you are. And yet we all accept that kind of fluidity because it's life-saving. That's right. And the brain's always doing this this very intricate job of combining different streams of information from the different senses. Light arrives very quickly at our eyes, much more quickly than sound. But our brain tends to figure out, well, what's the common cause of the light and the sound? And so we experience it as, as coming from a single objects. Mm. You know, we, we occasionally experience weird things like Doppler shifts when, you know, when an ambulance siren goes past us and it suddenly changes pitch, but we still perceive it as coming from that ambulance. So our brains are constantly figuring out, using the streams of sensory information to figure out its best guess of what caused those signals. And that, that well, my claim anyway, is that is what we experience. It's not just some sort of highly filtered version of the information itself. The brain's using the information to figure out what the most likely cause was. And that is what we experience. You've said already quite a few times, you know, I think. Now, obviously, you are investigating this stuff as a neuroscientist, but what is measurable biologically and what is still kind of up for grabs as philosophy? Well, the whole field, I think, is this beautiful interaction between the two. And that's one of the things that attracted me to it. When we're trying to understand something as fundamental as the nature of human experience, it doesn't sit comfortably within any single discipline. There's a long history of, of philosophy about the relation between the world as it appears and the world as it actually is. And then neuroscience is beginning to give us the tools to get under the hood and see what the mechanisms are that might actually speak to some of these philosophical ideas. So right now, it's still a very exciting and a little bit up for grabs area about how actually the brain does this. It's very easy to say that, yes, the brain is just making its best guess about what's happening in the world, and that's what we experience. But the nuts and bolts underlying this, they're not simple. Of course, they're not simple. Nothing in the brain is simple. That's the first lesson of, of neuroscience. But they're also not completely intractable. So a lot of neuroscientists spend their time trying to figure out which regions of the brain light up when we're doing one thing or another thing. So what parts of the brain light up when we open our eyes and, and see the world compared to when we you know, focus on ourselves or we, we make an action or something like that. What I'm really interested in is looking at how different parts of the brain interact. On the ideas that we've been talking about, then what we experience should be much more closely tied to signals that the brain is sending in this inside out, top down direction, back out to the sensory organs like the eyes and the ears than the other way around. And this actually resolves a bit of a mystery in neuroscience, which is if, if you look inside the brain, then you find that there are a lot more connections going back out to the eyes than there are coming from the eyes into the center of the brain. And you know, this doesn't really make sense unless you think of perception as in fact this inside out rather than outside in process. Okay, so can you give us some examples? What specific areas of the brain light up when then? Well, there's not a huge amount of agreement about this. This is one of these, these areas which is exciting because there's a lot of different findings. I mean, one thing everyone basically agrees is that when we're doing vision, the visual cortex is involved. This is for sure. But there's a lot of argument about whether what we experience is really defined by what's happening in the visual cortex itself, this region 
at the back of the brain where signals from the eyes first arrive when they get into the cortex and they're the more complicated part of the brain where all the interesting stuff happens or most of the interesting stuff happens or whether it also or more so depends on what's happening in parts of the brain more towards the front the so-called frontal lobes the parietal lobes and so on and different theories of consciousness differ in their claims about how these parts of the brain are involved but my interest again is not so much in which area is involved but more what the underlying computations what the underlying calculations the brain is doing independently or at least a little bit independently of where they actually happen so is some of that about defining consciousness at all? You just use the word consciousness like we all understand what that is, but is there agreement about what that is? <laughs> yeah, I did rather slip that in a bit unfairly under the hood. There is not a like a precise agreement. There's no consensus formal definition that everyone would like sign their, their names to in a, in a contract. But there is, I think, a broad definition where people in philosophy and, and neuroscience can agree that they're not talking past each other. We all know what consciousness is informally. It's, it's what we lose when we go to sleep and we're not dreaming, or even more profoundly when we're under general anesthesia. And it's mm. what returns when we come around or wake up. And in the case of vision, consciousness is what makes us more than just complex meat-based computers. You know? When light hits our eyes, it's not just that our brains somehow decide what's out there and we behave in a particular way. There's, there's a whole other dimension entirely, right? We have a visual experience. Our minds are filled with light and shade and shape and color. And that's the aspect of perception that I mean when I talk about consciousness. It's one thing for the brain just to try to figure out what's going on and get it right or get it wrong. But it's another thing entirely, or it seems to be another thing entirely, for this process to be accompanied by actual experience. That's one of the great mysteries that we still face in neuroscience. How do we explain how and why that happens? But can't we see how and why it happens, the sort of intervention of the self into consciousness, purely through... I mean, even just through the lens of sort of health and well-being, you know, you learn not to touch the hob so you don't touch the hob and burn yourself. And, and that's because you see the world through your self-identity. Well, there's a number of things going on here. Firstly, I don't think just introducing the self solves the problem. For me, it makes the problem richer and more interesting because you know, what is a self? You can ask what is consciousness, but then the next question is, well, what's a self? What's a conscious self? It's It might be tempting to think, well, the self is the thing that you know is doing the perceiving. As you say, it's like... Right sees the bus or sees the hot stove and, and gets the sensory information, figures out what to do next so as not to get run over or get burnt, something like that. But this idea of the self as what does the perceiving and what makes the decisions or exercises free will, something like that, that just makes things even more complicated because, well, we have to say, well, where does that come from? What is the experience of being a self? Now, in mm. in my view, the self is not the thing that does the perceiving and that sort of parachutes in and exercises free will and changes the course of physical events. No, the self is itself a kind of perception. Now, we experience being a self, I think, through the same kinds of mechanisms that the brain enables an experience of the world. It's making predictions and using sensory information to update those predictions. But now the predictions are grounded in what's happening in the body rather than out there in the world. 
So the self is part of the problem. It's not the solution to the problem. But I think that makes it just so much more interesting. Okay, let's just go back to brass tacks on perceptions then, because we've talked about eyes and ears. But what else is informing the predictions that our brains make as we look around the world? All sorts of things. We all grow up with this idea that there are the five classic senses of sight, sound, smell, touch and and taste. And, And these are very important. There are primary ways in which our bodies, human bodies, other animals, of course, are very different in how they sense and react to the world. But certainly for humans, these five senses are the primary ones and vision is probably the most important. But we have many more than five senses. A lot of them have to do with the self again. So the brain doesn't have direct access to either the world out there or even to the body itself. The brain is locked in this bony vault of a skull and it has to infer, has to make its best guess of what's going on. So it needs sensory information coming from the body. We just don't normally think about it in those terms. We all, for instance, have just this natural sense of where our body is in space. I know I can just feel whether I'm raising my arm or or lowering my arm without looking at it. And that's because my brain's sensing joint position and joint angle and movement and so on. We call this proprioception. And then there's a whole other raft of sensory information that comes from within the body. Things like sensing how the heart is doing, how the gut is doing, what blood oxygenation levels are like, things like this. And we don't experience them as such. It's not that I have a direct perceptual experience of my blood sugar levels. But of course, we experience things like emotion and mood. And for me, emotions and moods are also kinds of perception. They're the brain's perceptions of the internal state of the body in just the same way that seeing a blue and black dress or a red car across the road is my brain's best guess prediction about visual information that's coming into the eye. To go back to my John Lennon Lime Street Station example, the thing that I found fascinating was that obviously my brain could have chosen to see John Lennon the first time, but took the information that it recognised most as a station and chose that as the preference until later it became aware that other people had specifically seen the face of a famous person and then knowing that, I looked back and saw it. So it feels like perception isn't about actually what's even in front of you. It's it's about as much about what you choose to ignore. These senses like you're describing, what's going on in your liver and your kidneys and whatever, that you're not thinking about consciously. You're ignoring that, but you might have access to it. Right. There's this intricate dance between what the brain expects to be there, you know, which you can change because, as you said, you basically installed a new expectation in your brain by... Yes by recognising that other people could see John Lennon there. That gave your brain a new tool for interpreting the same sensory information. And, and we, you know, we do this all the time, you know, especially you know, if we're learning a foreign language, for example, what sounds like just a stream of incoherent noise. As we learn the meanings of words, we start to not only understand the sound that we're hearing, it sounds different. You know, we actually hear words in what was previously just noise. So by installing new expectations, we can change what we experience. But then the brain is also all the time selecting what data to pay attention to. the, The real world is kind of infinitely rich in the signals that it could provide. And the brain is actively sampling just small parts of what it could, in principle, sample. And so our experience can be 
both more than what's there because it can be really, really shaped by our brain's expectations and less than because we selectively sample just a little bit of it. And this means we can miss things. There's a wonderful Mm. phenomenon in psychology called change blindness, which is this phenomenon in which if something is changing slowly and we're not expecting the change, like the brain hasn't got this template installed to expect change, then we're not going to perceive the change. And it just looks like to us, it seems as though nothing is going on. But then the whole texture of the scene, the colors, the objects, many, many things might have changed. And we will not have noticed. And I think this is fascinating because it shows us that it's not just colors and shapes that are up for grabs here. It's really basic things like the perception of change itself is not a given. Whether we experience something as changing or not, depends on whether we expect to see something as changing or not. So, if the world that we experience is a constructed perception of reality, what does this mean for people who see the world completely differently? Does research into consciousness have implications for treating mental illness? One of the challenges of treating, of understanding mental illness is that currently, speaking very broadly, we have ways of treating the symptoms, but we have very little understanding of the mechanisms involved. Now, it's as if we have the equivalent of paracetamol but we don't have the equivalent of antibiotics that can get in there and really deal with the underlying causes. And if you think about how mental illness manifests, people often talk about behavior, but really the starting point of mental illness is usually in how people experience the world and the self. Either their experience of the world around them is altered in some way, or their experience of being a self within the world is altered in some way. And so a deeper understanding of the mechanisms that create experience has got to be part of the story. I'll give you one example of how it's already making a difference. And it's something my group are involved in studying. So there are a number of conditions where people really do hallucinate, not not in this sort of way that we've been describing about how normal perception works, but in the in the very florid way in which people might really see things that are not there that other people don't see, like hallucinating a person who's not actually in the room. So a kind of psychosis? It happens in psychosis. Actually, in psychosis, it's more auditory hallucinations that happen. But there are other conditions where visual hallucinations happen a lot after visual loss, actually in things like Parkinson's disease. And of course, in, in conditions when people take psychedelics and things like that, many conditions in which people can have visual hallucinations. And we can begin to understand how and why these happen through the lens of the brain as this prediction machine. Because if the balance between the brain's expectations of what's going on and the sensory information that comes in, if that balance goes awry, then the brain will start to reach conclusions that become very different from what other people's brains might reach. And we all know something of this process. If you look at the sky when there are lots of little white fluffy clouds, you can often see faces 
in these clouds, or or rather the shadows of faces in these clouds. You know they're not faces, but you can see a face you know, in the same way that you could see whatever. What did you see in the Lime Street Station? <laughs> John Lennon. John Lennon. In the same way you can see John Lennon, you can see faces in clouds. And that's because the brain is continually projecting this prediction of face into things to see where it grips. So you can think of some kinds of visual hallucinations as just this process being, you know, being turned up to 10 or 11 on the, on the volume scale. That gives us a handle into the mechanisms. And I think it generalizes. We can use that understanding of how hallucinations develop to understand other things like depression and anxiety too. Now the altered predictions are not about things happening in the world, but about things happening in the body. And there are some very interesting theories about how depression might be fundamentally related to the brain making wrong predictions about its ability to regulate the physiological condition of the body. Mm. Now, these are all very interesting insights. The real challenge, and this still is a challenge, is how do we translate these insights? I mean, firstly, how do we test them? But then how do we translate them into therapies? And this is a long game, but there is progress being made. And it's a, it's a hugely exciting area because I think it, it shows that consciousness research is not just some ivory tower indulgence trying to understand one of life's great mysteries, but it's a mystery that really matters in mental health and psychiatric illness is one of those contexts where it really does matter. And of course, theory hits the reality, doesn't it, when it intersects with personal experience. And you've written very movingly about how your mother suffered from delusions when she was admitted to hospital with an unrelated condition. Yeah, that's right. And it's a while ago now, but it still is an incredibly vivid memory for me. It was very unexpected. I mean, it was the first time in my life where decades of studying and thinking about consciousness collided head on with what I was confronted with in my personal life. And my mother had been admitted to hospital for bowel cancer, actually, but she had a number of seizures and ended up in this state which was called hospital-induced delirium. I'd never heard of this before. It's really a revealingly uninformative name. I mean, delirium, it sounds like it's surfacing from the depths of the 19th or even 18th century. Mm. And it kind of is because it really hasn't changed since then. It's, it's just this idea that in hospitals, which are very confusing environments where people's sleep is disrupted, where they generally can be very ill anyway, that people's minds can go quite significantly off the rails too. And in this case, my, my mother, she started hallucinating. She would see people crawling up the, the walls. But what was most challenging for me was that both her beliefs about who I was changed. You know, I was mm. suddenly this Machiavellian presence that was trying to do experiments on her without her consent. And also, as part of that, who she was changed too. I mean, she became a different person. Delirium, fortunately, did not last for my mother. And you know, after some time, she did not exactly return to herself, as we might be tempted to say. Now, she was never the same person again. But the self that she became was much more similar to the self that she had been before this episode.
Okay, you've given us a great primer over this episode into a lot of the different things that you research into. And I know it's not a yes or no answer, (laughs) but I'm going to push you on our title. Are we all living in a hallucination? I'm going to give you an answer. No, we're not living in a hallucination. We are living in a controlled hallucination. So there is a real world out there that exists independently of our minds. But the way we experience it, now that is always an active construction, a creative product of the brain and the body and the world. And each controlled hallucination is going to be just a little bit different. And I think that diversity is enriching and enlightening and underlies the the uniqueness and the should give us an appreciation for this everyday miracle that consciousness is. It's far too easy to take it for granted. You know, we wake up, we open our eyes and, oh, there's the world. But that really is an everyday miracle. So, amidst the long history of philosophical thinking about consciousness and perception, it's neuroscientists observing our brains light up as we experience the world around us, however it seems to us. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Professor Anil Seth. Thank you, Ollie. It's been a pleasure. Don't forget there are new episodes of Why every Monday and Thursday. Follow the podcast so you never miss an edition. And do follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Ollie Mann, asking Why. See you next time. Why was written and presented by Ollie Mann. The producers were Anne-Marie Luff with Eliza Davis-Beard and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by Jim Parrott and our theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production.